0: Open up in your Bibles to Mark 9. Mark 9. This morning we're going to talk about an issue that everybody faces. Uh, No one here this morning gets to say, this one doesn't apply to me. Uh, This one applies to that guy in the other row, but not me. No one gets to say that this morning. This is, of course, I don't think we should really ever be saying that. But I want to emphasize this morning that this is for every single one of us in a profound way. In fact, the more we might think this is not really for me, the more it is exactly for you. (laughs) This is for you. Um, So, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to remind you that Jesus has said that you, if you want to follow Him, you have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross uh, you have to follow Him. That's what we've been talking about. Jesus has explicitly not only described His own future suffering, but He's also invited the disciples into it. You're going to follow Me, and as you follow Me, you're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up your cross, You know this execution device. You're going to carry that with you, and you're going to follow Me. You're not following your own selfish ambitions anymore. I'm going to tell you, that's what Jesus says, and you're going to leave church and you're going to go out into a world and that world is going to tell you not to deny yourself but to express yourself the world is going to tell you not to take up your cross but to grab everything you're entitled to grab uh, the world is not going to tell you to follow you follow Jesus the world is not going to tell you that the the world is going to tell you to follow your heart in other words you leave church, you leave the Word of God, and you will have a message that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus has taught us. And we are in a culture, we exist in a society that is all about human praise and human approval and entitlement and self-esteem. We are a self-centered society. Uh, There has been an entire generation that has been raised in what has been called the self-esteem movement, where the children that are under our care, the way we try to uh, raise them to become productive uh, members of a society, the way we try to do that is by making them feel good about themselves all the time, to reinforce the idea that they are great, that they cannot fail. Uh, We make sure that they feel loved. We try to guard them from any sense of, disappointing others, or failing at all. Everyone gets a participation trophy these days. And we think, our society thinks, that the reason that kids grow up and they become drug addicts or they become rebels and they rebel against the rules of the society or they become criminals, uh, you'll hear psychologists saying that the problem is they just don't love themselves enough. They just don't love themselves enough. If they only had more self-esteem if they just thought a little higher of themselves they wouldn't go around trying to steal and cheat and lie and get drunk or whatever it is that they're doing they just need to to think higher of themselves so in other words the bible is saying that pride is the root of all kinds of sin and all kinds of evil in our hearts and our society and the world is going to tell you that the lack of pride is the root of all the problems in our hearts and in our society. The Bible is going to tell you that you think too highly of yourself, and the world is going to say you don't think highly enough of yourself. Uh, the world is going to try to convince you that you're great, and all you need to do is express your greatness. And the Bible is going to come along and say, no, you're a, you're a sinner, and you need to repent, you need to change from the inside out, and only by the grace of God. In other words, the message of Jesus is diametrically opposed to what you're hearing, what your kids are hearing, and every movie you watch, and every book you read, and every job and career you're in, and what your bosses are telling you, and and what the the kind of toxic air that we are breathing. None of us are exempt from it. We're taking in this false idea of greatness. Have you caught a whiff of that? I mean, it's in the air. I mean, it's so prevalent that you almost don't even recognize it anymore it's just kind of baked into the way we think about life what's interesting though is as i was kind of studying on this topic this week is that some even secular psychologists are beginning to see the error of this self-esteem movement There are even even people who reject the bible are beginning to see that this is kind of crazy to always tell your kids that they can do no wrong and that they're really great people and they just need to express themselves uh, i read this week this i'll quote Roy Baumeister, a professor of social psychology at Florida State University, found that criminals and drug abusers actually have higher self-esteem than the general population. Other researchers have found that bullies think fairly highly of themselves. That's why they think they deserve your lunch money. And may even see themselves as superior to their classmates. So in other words, what do you expect to happen when a whole society is being uh, indoctrinated with the idea that they're, you're just good, you're naturally good, you're inherently good, you're really great, you just got to get a handle of your greatness and just express it. Just be you and express your greatness. What happens when those kind of people run a society? Uh, what, what happens when those people live in, in a family? What happens when that kind of thinking infiltrates a church? Well, you get people who are trampling all over each other because they think they deserve it. They think they deserve accolades and praise, and they're, uh, they're, they're addicted to this idea of greatness. They want to be great. They want to be thought of as great. They have this idea that they already are great, and others need to recognize their greatness. And we can sit there and point at the society out there and say that this is their problem. But if we're honest, we also have to reflect on the reality in our own hearts that we think wrongly about greatness at times. Maybe more often than we're even willing to admit, we like to think of ourselves as pretty good people. I'm really a great guy if you would just get to know me. Just, you know, if you would see my life, you would also agree that I am pretty great. Sadly, this is often how we think. We all, in our pride, crave greatness, crave approval. We want people to see us as high and exalted individuals, powerful and prestigious. We love being great. We like people thinking that we're great. We like the people who think we're great. We surround ourselves with those ones. And that is going to be exactly opposed to what we're experiencing in Mark's gospel. Just to give you a little context, we're in Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 30 to 37 this morning. Jesus has been describing who he is. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one that's going to come and establish his kingdom. Peter's and the apostles are thrilled about this. But then Jesus begins to explain that he will suffer he will die, that he will voluntarily lay his life down for the salvation of his people. He explains these things, and the disciples just don't get it. They can't get it. It doesn't click with them. And so Jesus has been in the process over these last few sections we've been looking at, is trying to help them understand the the necessity of his suffering and how even his suffering will not result in him uh, failing to receive the glory he deserves. He will be glorified he will establish his kingdom he shows them that on the transfiguration mountain there in the beginning of chapter nine but still what's going on is these disciples are not processing what it is to follow this messiah what that means for them and the idea that he might suffer and really what this comes down to fundamentally is the disciples have a skewed idea of greatness a wrong view of greatness. Their idea of greatness that they've got in their minds is not the idea that Jesus has and has been presented to them. Because uh, if you're really great, Jesus, why would you suffer? If you're really great, Jesus, why would you die a shameful death on a cross? If you're really great, Jesus, why do you keep talking about us having to deny ourselves and and take up our crosses with you? I thought we were going to set up a kingdom. I thought we were going to set up an everlasting, glorious kingdom, and you keep talking about dying, what's the deal? Don't you know, Jesus, what greatness really is? And so they're not, they're not getting it. And so they really did need to have their paradigm shifted. They really did need to rethink greatness. That's the title of the message this morning, is Rethinking Greatness. Because we, church... We need to rethink greatness. Every single one of us came in, not into this room, under this tent. We found our chair. And now we're here listening to a sermon. I can guarantee that every last one of us needs to recalibrate our idea of what greatness is. Because we have ideas that we've smuggled in from the world... That we haven't even been really thinking about. They're very subtle, but we've smuggled them in. And we need to rethink what is true greatness according to the Word of God. How does God define greatness? Not the ideas that we've picked up along the way. How is God going to define greatness? And here we're going to read the text, and then we're going to look at how Jesus is reshaping the disciples' idea of greatness. Let's look. Chapter 9, verse thirty. And we're going to go to verse 37. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child. And put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives this or one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. It's in these sections that Jesus is recalibrating the disciples' understanding of greatness. I think there's going to be four responses that we're going to have to make to this text. And I'm going to give you give them to you up front you can jot them down if you want and then we'll look at them more closely as we study the text number one we're going to have to consider christ's suffering number two we're going to have to be aware of human pride number three we're going to have to embrace the identity of a servant and number four we're going to have to receive believers as if we're receiving christ himself we'll get to those as we work through it But let's start with the first one found in verses 30 to 32. We're going to have to rethink greatness by considering Christ's suffering. So let's let Christ be the paradigm for us to understand greatness. Look at verse 30. They went on from there. This is Jesus now with the 12 disciples. They went from this previous scene with the boy. If you remember with that demon that had been abusing him violently, uh, that boy... Um, now has been healed, and now they're passing from there, and they're going back down north uh, through Galilee. And this would have been getting back into the familiar territory. This would have been back more where Jesus had been doing his ministry in the early parts of Mark. It says, and he did not want anyone to know. Uh, There would have been people who would know him there in Galilee. If you remember in in, in chapter 1, 2, 3, the great crowds were appearing in Galilee, following him around He was hugely popular. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, the scribes and Pharisees had rejected him, and he's focusing now on the disciples. From now until the end of Mark, there will be few points where he talks with the crowds, but in general, his main focus is these 12 men because he's preparing them for his departure. He's preparing them for his departure. And so he needs to make sure that they have drilled down uh, the truth of who he is and what he's doing and what they ought to do. And so he's spending all kinds of time discipling them. So he says he's teaching them, and they're hi- kind of hiding from the crowds. He didn't want anyone to know. They're verse 30. He's for, there's Verse 31, he says he's teaching his disciples. Uh, they need to be taught. Disciples need to be taught. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you need to be continually learning. Uh, it says, what, what were they being taught? Verse 31, the Son of Man, this is what Jesus is teaching them. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This is something that he'd gone over, but they hadn't got it, and so are going over again. Repetition, right? If you're a teacher, you know that the repetition of a, of a key point is essential for the kids that you're teaching to pick it up. And so he's repeating it. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, they're not getting it, verse 32. Now, to us, that seems pretty straightforward, but they are simply not getting it. Now, I want to help you understand maybe why they're not getting it in a broader way. We've been going over this, but I want to help you understand it more specifically by looking at that word, Son of Man. You see that there? Now, if I were to ask you, you hear the phrase, Son of Man, Jesus, referring to himself as the Son of Man, do you think he's referring more to his human nature or his divine nature? His humanity or his divinity? Now, most of us would think, well, he's talking about the Son of Man, that that would be referring to his humanity. He's the Son of a Man. He's human. He's referring to Christ's human nature. And actually, the opposite is true. And I want to prove it to you that the idea of the Son of Man is referring to God or to Christ's divine nature as the Messiah. And I want to show you from Scripture in Daniel chapter nine or chapter seven. Verse 9, so keep your finger in Mark, turn back into the end of the Old Testament, and we're going to see a prophecy given by Daniel where this whole idea of the Son of Man originates. It'll give you a new perspective every time you read the Son of Man, that little phrase, you'll understand what what the Jews would have been hearing, especially those who are familiar with the book of Daniel, what they would have understood that to mean. So if you're looking in, in Daniel, it'll take you a little while to find Daniel. Some of us maybe never read Daniel before. It can be very confusing toward the end of the book, but here's a part where Daniel has this vision. He's been getting these visions about these beasts, bizarre creatures, but they represent these world powers that will arise in the future. And then in chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel writes this. He says, As I looked thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Obviously, that phrase, Ancient of Days, in the ESV, it's capitalized because it's referring to a person. It's kind of a proper title, and it's referring to someone, obviously, who is eternal, who is ageless. Um, It's not saying he's ancient as in he's old and feeble. Uh, It's the idea of someone being wise and sagely Someone who inspires veneration, a sense of majesty. It says his clothing is white as snow. That's symbolic of perfect purity. The hair of his head is like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames. Fire also, this idea of burning purity, you know, burns away the dross. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So this idea is old, ancient of days. White hair, white robe, burning fire all around him. Fire streaming out like a river from his throne. A kind of uh, sight that none of us have ever seen in our lives. And on this throne is this this figure that is majestic. And then, get this, it gets even more amazing. It says, A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. In other words, these... these majestic man, or or ancient of days, is surrounded by people. It could be angels surrounding him, thousands upon thousands. As high up as you look, there are these creatures there uh, all around him, and it says they stand before him, and it says the court sat in judgment. So this is a scene of judgment. It says that the books were opened. These books probably represent the The sum total of the the deeds of every person, all the things we've ever done, opened up before the ancient of days, and so here is this kind of courtroom with the judge on the seat and all their witnesses there, gathered thousands upon thousands, and the books are opened. It's amazing. He describes a little bit further in verses 11 and 12. I'm going to skip over those to get to the point here. In verse 13, he continues on with this vision. I saw in the night visions. Look at this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Huh. And he came to the ancient of days. So, so here comes this one like the son of man. That is, he looks like a man. He, he's, this one who's the Ancient of Days is different. He's majestic. He's kind of almost, you can't categorize him. But this one appears, and he's, he looks like the Son of Man. And he comes next to this Ancient of Days, and it's, he's presented before him, it says. And look at this in verse 14. And to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is the one who is brought before the Ancient of Days in the court of judgment, and He is to be the one who establishes His kingdom, who is given dominion. Why? So that every people, every nation, every tribe, every tongue would see him and serve him that's who the son of man is now put that in your mind next time you hear jesus referring to himself as the son of man now that's mind blowing that's staggering and for the disciples now get back into mark for disciples to hear that not only is jesus the son of man but the son of man's going to suffer they they didn't have a category for that. Wait, wait, I've read Daniel, Jesus. The Son of Man has dominion. He establishes a kingdom. He rules forever. It says his kingdom will be everlasting. Why do you keep talking about death? You're not going to die. The Bible says so. And so Jesus has to help them understand that there was more to the old prophets than just this idea that he would establish a kingdom. We looked at Isaiah 53 a couple weeks ago. He is the Son of Man. And so when you understand what is meant by this idea of the Son of Man, you can maybe understand the disciples so you know, horrified by the idea of His dying. But here's what we need to recalibrate on. Listen. When Jesus is trying to help His disciples recalibrate their idea of greatness... He describes what He Himself will do as the Son of Man. You see, the greatest person you can think of, the most high and glorious person, most exalted person you can imagine, is the Son of Man. And you want to know what true greatness is? Is that that man comes and suffers and dies on behalf of His people. He doesn't just come and glorify Himself in the establishment of a kingdom. He comes to suffer. Rethink greatness, disciples. The greatest One to have ever existed will come to lay His life down. Rethink greatness. The greatest One who has all rule and power and authority and dominion comes to serve. Rethink greatness, disciples. Here it is, church. Process this. The highest most honorable, most worthy, most glorious person becomes the lowest, most despised, most unappreciated person to experience the most horrendous, most painful, most terrifying death that the worst, the most vile, the most undeserving sinners like me and you can receive the highest, the most great, the most glorious gift of salvation. That is what the Son of Man did, and that totally flips upside down our idea of what greatness is. You want greatness? Look at the cross. Don't look at the kingdom first. Look at the cross. You want to understand greatness? Look at the Son of Man, who will have all rule and dominion and authority, and look at Him carrying a heavy, wooden, splintery cross walking outside Jerusalem on the road to Calvary, well, he will get beaten up and killed as if he were a criminal. That's greatness, church. That is greatness. Think of what he did for you, church. Think of how he purchased you, church, and then recalibrate in your own mind what greatness means for us, for you. Greatness doesn't avoid suffering. It willingly embraces it for the eternal good of others. Greatness doesn't avoid self-denial. It will willingly deny self to serve others and bless others. We need to behold the sufferings of the Son of Man if we want to understand what true greatness is like. Don't let the world define greatness to you. Get before Calvary and look up at that cross and see your Savior dangling there. And go, that's greatness. And aspire to that. Say, I want to be like that. I want to offer myself up and lay my life down and deny myself and take up my cross. Why? So that others can be served and loved and cared for. He who was rich became poor. That's greatness. And so we start rethinking greatness by considering the sufferings of the Son of Man. That's not where it ends. He continues on. We need to rethink greatness by recognizing human pride. And there's this kind of funny situation that happens right after that. So here Jesus is thinking about true greatness because, of course, he's the perfect sinless Messiah. He understands what greatness is like. And so he's talking about suffering. He's talking about laying his life down and, and dying and rising. In verse 33, they come to Capernaum. This is like back at square one in Mark chapter one. They've been here before. It says they go into the house. This might be Peter's house might be Peter's house. He lived around this area. He said he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? Like deer in the headlights. (laughs) Suddenly they don't know what to say. They're, They're quiet again. It says, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus has suffering on the brain. The disciples, by contrast, have their own personal greatness in mind. That's what they're arguing about. That's what they're thinking about. Now, that word "argued" is an interesting one. Uh, in, initially, when you read it, you think that's a negative word. That's a, a bad word. They're they're arguing. They're in a fight. Like they're ready to go to blows over who's the greatest. It's actually a, a more neutral word. In fact, if you look it up in different places in its usage in the New Testament, it's a it's a word that's used very positively in some places. In fact, uh, Paul, when he is a dialoguing with the Jews, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, it uses this word and it's translated as he was reasoning with them. He was persuading them. It wasn't this fist fight argument. It was him laying down rational, reasonable arguments to try to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the kind of idea. So I don't think we need to think of the disciples as fighting and pushing each other and yelling at each other and some you know, throw down... Argument. I think it's actually much more civil than that. They're presenting a rational case why they're the greatest one. Like, well, I really do think I'm probably the greatest, and here's some of my reasons. I got, you know, I got reasons for that. Um, and, and, and actually, there might be some legitimate reason, not legitimate, but there might be some explanation for why they actually thought that they might be the greatest. If you think about the context, where had Peter, James, and John just come from? They just come from the mountain of transfiguration. In other words, Peter, James, and John got to see what the rest didn't get to see. Jesus just pe- picked three to go see the mountain of transfiguration. So some say, well, maybe they're arguing about who's the greatest because only three of them got to see the transfiguration. Maybe they're the, maybe those three are the greatest. And Peter's probably going, yeah, yeah, you're probably right about that, yeah. I think I probably am the greatest. You know, I was one of the guys brought up front, and I was the one that offered to build the tents for, you know, the three ones up there. So it's probably me. And they all got their different reason for why they might be the greatest. Another, uh, uh, what might be an explanation for what they're arguing about, is that Jesus has been talking about his suffering, his eventual departure. And they're maybe starting to think about who will be running the show after Jesus is gone. You know, who's going to be the lead apostle? Who's who's that going to be? Who's Jesus going to choose? So maybe they're starting to think about when this kingdom comes... Who's going to be the greatest there? Who's going to be the the next up after Jesus is gone? It's not totally clear what they're arguing about, but what is clear is that they are arguing about their own personal greatness, and they have totally misunderstood what God would say about greatness. They think it's about popularity or prestige or prominence, power. They think it's about these things that are... Uh, uh, recognized in the eyes of men and women around them. Uh, They might think it's a position of authority where people look at them and they honor them because of their position. This is what they're doing even after just having heard about their Savior's future suffering. Do we ever do anything like this? Ever at all? I think if we're honest... There is often an internal discussion. Sometimes it bubbles to the surface. More often, it's right up here. It's happening in here. We're having an inward discussion about who's the greatest. We've got a little round table in our mind. We're all sitting at the table. And we're sizing each other up. I think I might be greater than that guy. Oh, do you see what that person did? Another notch in my belt, because I didn't do that thing. I didn't make that mistake. Do you think we ever do anything close to that? Does pride ever manifest itself in that way where we're thinking, maybe talking, about the ways people are inferior to us and we are superior to them? Let me ask you a series of questions that might draw this to the surface a little bit, because I think it happens more than we realize. Do you constantly compare yourself with other people? Really, the only way to get arguing like these disciples are to compare yourself with them. And so are you comparing yourself regularly with others? Their social media accounts, their clothing, the kind of friends they have, the kind of money they make? The kind of personality they have. Here's another one. Do you secretly despise the success of others? Oh, you would never say it out loud, but deep down in your heart, you just can't stand that so-and-so got a promotion. You just have a really hard time with that person being recognized. You can't really celebrate the success of others That's the third question. Do you have a hard time celebrating the success of others? Can you see someone else succeed where you have failed and cheer them on? Or will you make an excuse for yourself and think of a reason for why they could do it and you couldn't? Another question. Do you crave credit for every blessing you receive? A good thing happens to you, and you've got to figure out a way to make sure that they know. People know that the reason I got that blessing is because of what I did. I and mean, I worked for that. I earned that one. Oh, do you know the time I put in to get that prestigious award? you know the time I put in to make that career work? Oh, we love to make sure people know the kind of things that we've done to earn the blessings. We think that we've earned blessings, and we make sure people know what we've done to get those things. We don't see them as gifts unmerited from God. We see them rather as achievements that we can boast in. Do we often make excuses for our failures? It's another way that we're always fighting for greatness As we will never own our own failures. We'll often excuse them in various ways. Here's the last one. Do you crave recognition so badly that you get frustrated when people don't recognize you. You just get frustrated when they don't point out your service. They don't point they don't, they don't thank you for what you've done. You just you're just kind of angry that people aren't seeing how great you are and how much you've done. Some of us may be living in a marriage that is just one big argument about who's greater, manifesting itself in all kinds of ways. Who's right? Who deserves what? Who's going to serve and who doesn't need to serve? Those kind of questions. Some of our friendships are just plagued with this cancer of pride where we are just always trying to one-up one another. And it destroys unity. It really has a terrible, uh, terrible... Um, impact on the relationships we have it really is the destruction of unity and it's a distraction from mission if we are always vying for prominence there's no possible way we can be in unity with the people we're trying to be greater than and there's no possible way that we could remain on mission for God's glory when we're always fighting for our own and so look at verse 35 he sat down Jesus sat down it says he sat down because really that's the posture of a teaching rabbi. It says he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So we've got to rethink greatness first by considering the sufferings of the Son of Man. Secondly, we've got to recognize uh, human pride. We've got to rethink greatness by understanding the way human pride works and how we vie for greatness. And third, we're going to rethink greatness by becoming a lowly servant. Becoming a lowly servant. If anyone would be first, Jesus says, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be first, now listen, perk up here. Jesus is not saying that to pursue first is bad, he's not saying there's no such thing as true greatness. He's not saying anything like that. He needs he's saying there's a there's a different way to think about that. There's a new way that you need to adopt of thinking about greatness. You want to think about true greatness. You want to think about greatness in God's eyes. You want to think of greatness by the measure of eternity, not by the fickle opinions of human, you know, Friends and family around you. You don't want to measure greatness that way. You want to measure greatness in the eyes of God. And so Jesus is helping you think through. If you want to be first, truly first, if you want to be truly great, be last of all, be servant of all. Last of all, servant of all. You can almost imagine a banquet hall filled with all kinds of different people. You got a king and queen, and you got lords and ladies. And you got nobles and dukes and duchesses and everyone. you got the entertainment. you got the, the, uh, the poet up there and the, the song singer up there. you got this big scene of all kinds of different people, and everyone's there. And there in the back room is a servant, maybe a, a few servants. No one knows them. No one cares about them. They're not really part of the scene. And imagine you had the choice to choose who you're going to be. In that scene, who are you going to choose to be? I think nine out of ten of us would say, I want, to be, I want to be that king. I want to be that queen. I want to be at the front of the room. I want to be at the front of the table. I want to have the best seat. I want, I want that authority. I want those riches. I want that power. And I think what Jesus is saying here, that if we had the choice of what kind of status that we can have in the world, that Jesus would say, take the, take the role of the servant. Go low. No, no, go, go low. Go really low. Be the servant of the servants. Be the lowest you can. Be last of all. You see that? Be last of all if you want true greatness. True greatness in the eyes of God. Be last of all. That word servant there in Greek is diakonos. It's a word where you get the idea of a deacon. A deacon. Some of you know about a deacon in the church. The role of a deacon is to help, to assist, to minister, to serve. Uh, They're there to to ensure that things are getting done. They, They don't aren't very much up front. They're not very prominent. They're ones behind the scenes making sure it all goes well. And really the Bible teaches that every single Christian should adopt the mindset of a deacon, of a servant, of a lowly servant that doesn't get attention. Rather, it's the one who makes sure everything happens without really drawing any attention to himself. Church, this is what I want to call us to this morning. As we consider what Jesus is teaching here and we recalibrate, Our understanding of greatness, I want to call you to this. Embrace the identity of a servant. Embrace true greatness by becoming the last one. As I was studying for this, I I read a story about a guy, James B. Irwin, who was an astronaut, one of the few that got up in the outer space. And he describes seeing all of planet Earth. From a distance. Filled with amazement as he, as he reflected on all that's going down there on this planet. It looks so small from the great distance he was. He knew that as some of the few people to ever be in that kind of environment, to look back and, and to see that he would have kind of a celebrity return. When he got home, he knew that there would be people who would look at him like a, a sort of Celebrity that there would be some fame that he would inherit on his return, that people would want to listen to him and, and hear from him and you know, honor him because of this privilege of being one of the very few people to ever have exited the earth's atmosphere and see the earth from a distance. He was a Christian, born again, loved the Lord, and wanted to live his life for the glory of God. And he tells the story of how he's looking. He, he describes an earth rise. None of us have ever seen an earth rise. We see a A sunrise. He, or, or moonrise, he, he saw an earth rise and he's describing how overwhelmed he was with humility and he says in those moments he wrote down he says he says this in his memoirs as i was returning to earth i realized that i was a servant not a celebrity so i am here as god's servant on planet earth To share what I have experienced that others might know the glory of God. Now, not all of us get to go to outer space. Now, many of us will get the choice of even being a celebrity. But could you imagine, just with me for a second, coming back to earth, seeing that big rock, blue and green, and knowing that everything we've ever known is there. There's a hustle and bustle and people vying for prominence and people trying to be great and people stomping all over each other to get what they want out of this life. If you could just put yourself in that environment, I think if we're going to take Jesus' words to heart, we're going to understand there's billions of people on this planet. And we will say to ourselves, I don't want celebrity. I want to be a servant. You know, if there's 8 billion people here, I want to be the last. Put me in last place. Put me underneath all of them. Give all of them a higher rank than I. Put me at the very bottom. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is saying here. Last of all, servant of all, put yourself at the lowest rung. Demand no one to be your slave because you're his slave. You're her slave. You're the bottom. You're the lowest. You're aiming to be a servant, not a celebrity defy the wisdom of the world and don't go for greatness. Be the lowest of the low. And in the eyes of God, you will be great. Jesus gets really practical with this. In Luke 14.10, He's speaking about Him being invited to a feast. And He says, When you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place. Is that why some of you guys sit in the back? The lowest place? Or is it you're avoiding the spit in the front row? I don't know. When you're invited, go sit at the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Listen to this. The principle behind it, what Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, you try to honor yourself, you're going to miss out on honor. You try to pursue greatness yourself, you're going to miss out on greatness. You try to lower yourself, you try to honor others, you try to serve others, you try to lift others up, and you'll end up being approved by God, and God will vindicate you, and you'll be recognized as great in the kingdom. Not great in this world, but great in the kingdom. I remember in elementary school, it was like a carnival-type day, and the teachers had everyone out on the blacktop. And they said, all right, everyone line up, we're going to hit the pinata." Those of you know, if it's pinata time, you've got to be close to the front or you might not get a whack at that thing. And so I'm wrangling. I'm trying to get up front. I get close. I'm not quite as close as I wanted to be, but I, I thought, okay, I'm going to get a shot to hit this thing. So I'm close to the front of the line, and then one of the teachers, uh, to our, to my dismay, cries out, announces, Jesus said the first shall be last. Let's turn the line around. And those who are last will hit the pinata first. And I went, no. I'm getting no chance at this thing. And there was little Ben Miller at the back of the line celebrating. Little glasses on, the smallest kid in the class. He's going to whack that thing. He's going to get the chance that all of us were trying to have. And I, I've never forgotten that. I don't know if I understood the significance. I was just frustrated at the moment. I wanted to hit the thing. But but, but what I've learned since is what a great picture of the kingdom Is that the weak and the lowly, the ones that aren't grappling, maneuvering, to try to get to the front, and they just relegate themselves to sit in the back, to be the servant, to let others go forward. At the end of time, there will be a great reversal. Let that sink in. At the end of time, at the judgment seat, there will be a great reversal, where the least will be lifted, where the lowly will be exalted, where the humble will be lifted high. And those you thought were great, and those you thought were powerful and those who had all the prestige and those who lived for themselves and for their own glory and their own greatness, they will be at the bottom. Live that way. And embrace the posture of a servant. A few years ago, actually probably a few decades ago, a uh, reporter came to John MacArthur's church and uh, I think it was in the 70s, at Grace Community Church because the church had been exploding. There was a lot of people showing up at the church. And the reporter was amazed at the the, the the rapid growth, and so went around asking questions, tried to do a story on it, and ended up publishing an article that was titled, The Church with 900 Ministers. In other words, the, the reporter attributed the quick growth of the church, not necessarily to the one guy up front preaching, but to the vast number of people there who considered it their responsibility to be a servant. Everyone was pitching it. Everyone had a role to play. Everyone was all there, hands on deck, ready to roll. And, and Grace Rancho, I pray that for us. The church with hundreds of servants. The church with everyone all on board. No one's vying for authority and posturing for power. Rather, they're laying their life down. They show up and they say, I'm the servant here. I'm the one here to serve. I'm not here to get my preferences met. You know, you want, you want to divide a church? Come to a church hoping to have all your preferences met. The songs are just the way you like them. The seats are just cushy enough. The people are exact personalities you like to hang out with. Everything is exactly as you like it. The donuts are perfect. They're not too new. They're not too old. They're just the right you know, right smell, the right color, whatever. You have all these preferences and you're coming into church. That'll kill a church, and that'll kill your own discipleship. And it will discourage a bunch of people. Listen, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's about who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to aspire to greatness, make yourself the last of all, the lowest of all, the servant of all. Lay your preferences down. You don't come as a consumer. You come as a servant to lay your life down just like Jesus did for the good of others. I know there's some of you that aspire to leadership and I'm happy about that and I commend that and I pray for you. How are you doing serving? How are you doing giving up what's comfortable for the good of others? If there's a young man that loves doctrine and loves theology books, I will commend that. And at the same time, I will ask him, who are you serving? Because if that young man is not willing to bring a meal to a shut-in, or to give an elderly person a ride to church because they can't drive anymore, I'm going to say to that person, I don't care how much their doctrine's perfect. He said, I don't know what you mean when you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Because First John says that if you see a brother or a sister in need and you turn your shoulder and act as if they're all fine, how could the love of God abide in you? That's what John says. And so if we are going to follow Jesus, you know what we do? We become servants. And if our doctrine doesn't humble us to the ground and turn us into the servants of other people, we don't really have good doctrine. I don't care how good your theology is. If it's not transforming us to worship God with all our hearts and to love our brothers and sisters with all our hearts, and I don't know if we've got it yet. And so I also want to say on that note, um, I am so thankful for the culture of service that is here. Now, I mean, I praise the Lord for those of you who are servants. So I feel like this week I kind of got to see it front and center. It's amazing how God providentially works these things out. There's a sermon on service coming up, and Wednesday rolls around, and suddenly my office is being invaded by junior hires and high schoolers that are volunteering their Wednesday. I don't know if anything else fun was happening on Wednesday, but they showed up on Wednesday to help clear out my office and load up my books and move them out so we can get stuff work done, some work done on the weekend. Some of the kids might have been sitting around and eating pizza, but some of them... We're working hard. And I commend that attitude of service to give up time to come bless others. And then yesterday, the church right over here, some of you should need to go take a look inside the sanctuary. We had almost 40 people show up to pound down walls. I mean, you should see what Kyle was doing with those beams, with that sledgehammer. You should have seen these guys in action doing the work of service for the body of Christ, giving up a weekend, exhausting themselves to bless the body. That's service. And there are countless other examples I could give you of people in our congregation who visit juvenile detention centers to give the gospel to children who have made a mess of their lives. And people who are making meals for Uh, families have just had a newborn and showing up and blessing them that way. And people who are babysitting little ones so that young married couples can go on dates and have some time alone for once. I mean, this is happening and and I could go on and I could go on and I could go on. And I just want to commend that attitude and call us to continue excelling in that attitude. That we are servants of one another. And that you don't need to sign up to some program to be a servant. You just get to know people. And if you get to know people, guess what? Every single one of us is needy. You get to know people enough, you'll find a hundred different needs that you can meet yourself. Physical needs, spiritual needs, they're all there. We all got them. And if you care enough to invest in someone's life, you can start serving today. And I want to call us to that. Because that's true greatness. There's all kinds of needs. Building needs, financial needs, spiritual needs, physical needs. And so many of you are working and giving and praying and providing and I want to encourage you. And if you're on the fringe and you're not really committed to that, I just want to call you to lay down your life in service of Christ first and then in service of the body of Christ as an expression of your love for Christ. So rethink greatness by becoming a servant. I belabored that point. I want to conclude now with this. The last point. Which all ties together. It's found in verse thirty six. It's we need to rethink greatness by loving God's people. Verse thirty six it says Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, and he said to them, Whoever receives this such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Notice the tenderness of Jesus picking up a little kid. Some people say it's probably Peter's son, little boy. Takes them, puts him in the middle. He's tender, he's gentle. Uh, Matthew, I won't have you turn there, but Matthew makes it explicit that he's talking about that believers need to become like children. That if you want to become a part of the kingdom of God, you got to become like a child. you got to humble yourself, you've got to stop vying for power and authority, and you've got to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior uh, in utter faith and absolute trust. I mean, that's what salvation is. You've got to become like a child. Uh, and Mark kind of leaves that out and gets to kind of emphasize a, more, a different point. He, he emphasizes the point which happens right after that, which is where he takes this child, and then he says to them, if you receive this child, it's as if you're receiving me. And not only that, it's as if you're receiving God. Let that sink in. That word receive is used in other places in the New Testament to describe showing hospitality caring for someone where you let them into your home. You give them what they need. You give them some refreshment. You care for their soul. You care for their body. This is used in the end of Colossians where Paul is encouraging the church to receive traveling gospel ministers. He says, receive them. Paul, Paul uses that word there. Here, Jesus is using this word to describe receive other believers into your life. And if you receive them as little children to care for them, to care for their soul, to love them that way, to show hospitality, if you do that with little believers, you know what you're, you're doing? It's as if you're doing it to Jesus Himself. And it's as if you're doing that to God Himself. Uh, let this sink in. It's as if you're showing God hospitality. It's as if you're showing Jesus Christ the Messiah care. Like he, God has no needs that we can meet. And yet Jesus so identifies with other believers that He says, for you to love them is to express love for Me. For you to care for them is for you to express love for Me and My Father in Heaven. So rethink how you treat these people you see around you in church. That Jesus so identifies with, other, with, his, with his children, with His beloved children, with His church, That for you to love them is to love Jesus. And so there's a warning that if you don't love the church of Jesus Christ, I don't think you can actually truly love Jesus himself. If you're not willing to commit to a church family in love and care and hospitality, how can you say that you are committed to Jesus? The flip side on the positive, just remember this and be encouraged by this, that every time... You demonstrate care to a brother, a sister. You meet a need. You give a gift of encouragement. You write a note. You send a text. You say a prayer. You're doing this for these other brothers and sisters in your church family. In the moment you are doing that, recognize the profound reality that Jesus is taking that personally. You're doing it for me. And not just me. For my Father in heaven. Don't think worship is just singing. The way you treat one another can be an act of worship. The way you care, worship. The way you love, worship. Hospitality, worship. Do you love your Father in Heaven? Do you love your Savior? Love one another. And receive one another as if you're receiving little children. You care for them. So we really need to recalibrate our thinking of greatness. Start by staring at the cross. Start there. Understand the value of service and beware of human pride. And then understand that Jesus has so invested his name with his people that to love his people is to love him. Let's pray. Lord, you have not called us to avoid greatness, but but to pursue true greatness. So Lord, help us to be reoriented to be last of all, to be the most lowly, to be the servant. Help us to be great in self-sacrifice, great in humility, great in serving. Lord, grow us so that we treat other Christians with gentleness and tenderness and that we care for one another as if we're caring for You. Lord, we cannot do this without being empowered by the divine grace. So enable us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.